News in Washington and WBAI in New York. I'm Sue Goodwin. Show with your host Zain Al Amin. This is a show that focuses on Arab culture and politics, and it airs every Wednesday for one hour at WPFWFM.org and WBAIFM. Good afternoon. This is Zain Al Amin with the Shayunana Show, and welcome to Radio Resistance. Here um, we are talking, of course, today about Gaza and what's happening in Gaza. I'm going to give you an update. Uh, also, I'm going to share a little piece uh, that was done on uh, Double Down News um, about how uh, Netanyahu's war is basically uh, could destroy uh, the state of Israel. And uh, I'm going to follow that up with... Uh, uh, how uh, with uh, for something from Electronic Intifada, uh, which has been my favorite go-to uh, source of news, which is now, as I mentioned in the last uh, program, uh, that you know the Washington Post is really worried about the, how much truth is coming out through Electronic Intifada and how many people are listening to it that they have uh, 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 set uh, one of their uh, uh, Zionist reporters to do a hit job uh, on the electronic intifada, on, on the gray zone, uh, on uh, independent media that's telling the truth on the ground. And here's the truth on the ground right now in Gaza. <laughs> they, the United Nations and other uh, human rights organizations have been uh, warning uh, the world about uh, the devastation that's about to happen <clears throat> even after the fighting is done. This is already happening and it's taking the shape of hu the hunger that they told us about and the disease. So we have a situation right now where Gazans are eating animal feed, if you can imagine, out of desperation to, to satisfy their hunger. They're... Um, uh, the other day, I read a message in Arabic that was sent by a Gazan to uh, a, a religious authority, a cleric, asking him if there's an exception that could be made to eating uh, cats, uh, which have been actually taken care of by the Gazans, despite the horror that they're going through, that uh, they have no choice. That's the only thing that's left to eat in in the area that this Gazan was stuck. And I was asking if it's uh, okay, uh, if it's halal for somebody to eat cats in under this condition of starvation of war uh, to to survive. That's that's the degree of horror that uh, has reached uh, uh, Gaza right now. Um, also. Um, uh, beyond the you know the desperate situation right now, uh, at the end of this week on Friday, we're gonna hear from the uh, international court of justice uh, from uh, these judges that went to South Africa. These fifteen judges will uh, make a judgment on uh, uh, on Israel and and uh, uh, genocide, um, and uh, we. Uh, any person of conscience knows that that judgment, whatever it comes out, if it's going to be an indictment of Israel, uh, obviously that Israel provided Exhibit A of how they're committing genocide uh, of these uh, 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 soldiers that are uh, part of the reservists that have been recording music videos and dancing. It's, it's amazing how... Uh, 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 how much they lack <laughs> coordination in every sense. Um, uh, uh, that uh, that these kind of uh, videos of devastation, where soldiers are taking down pictures, IDF soldiers taking down pictures 
family pictures uh, in Palestinian homes and hanging mines and blowing up the houses and celebrating in the foreground as the houses are blown up. Uh, in the meantime, uh, uh, they're getting their behind handed to them more. We'll talk about that more later, uh, but uh, uh, in the real fighting. All this to say is that the judgment is going to come down this Friday, and it's either going to be an indictment of Israel and a recognition of the genocide that we witnessed live, the world witnessed live, the global south is up in arms, the Arab world is up in arms about it, or it's going to be an indictment on humanity right now. Because if they don't rule that this is a genocide, if they don't make a ruling against Israel, then that's going to be the new standard for imperial and colonial powers of how much they can get away with. All of them, not just the United States and Europe, but uh, Russia and China and uh, anybody that's involved in any kind of uh, uh, genocidal uh, work. Uh, uh, so it is an it's it's going to be a, a judgment on humanity. So like the the UN secretary uh, 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 mentioned uh, um, that this is not uh, a crisis in humanity, but uh, 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 this is not a, a, a humanitarian crisis. Rather, it is a crisis in humanity. So. Uh, in the meantime, on the other, in, in real life, outside of the propaganda that Israel is putting out, they had to admit that uh, last week, at one point, uh, dozens of soldiers were in a house, again, a civilian house that they had secured and decided to blow it up because they're establishing a, a buffer zone, which is not going to happen. Uh, the way things are going. They're establishing a buffer zone by literally wiping out all civilian buildings uh, within a set, uh, uh, like a belt uh, around uh, around Gaza to allow bordering uh, settlements uh, to be inhabited again. Uh, so that while they were setting up all these mines to blow up uh, these houses, and I'm sure they were ready to do another uh, music video or another uh, video of them standing in the foreground smiling while they're blowing up houses. I mean, who would have thought in the 21st century that you're going to have soldiers live on TV or on TikTok saying that we killed children, we killed babies, and smiling about it and getting away with it? This is what Biden is supporting. This is These are the kind of maniacs that Biden's supporting. That's why everywhere he goes, he's being confronted. And those of you who are yelling four more years, you are the scum of the earth. Just know that. You are the most disgusting people that I've ever witnessed in my 60 years of life. The, this is four more years of what? Of what? Of every betrayal, that uh, betrayal of every promise, of continuing to uh, uh, spark, put fuel on a war that's expanding into regional and a World War II. Your, your intoxication with bipartisanship is, is, uh, uh, lacks all humanity, is devoid of humanity. You are either ignorant or a racist Islamophobe or a, a period an anti-Arab racist. So those of you who are yelling four more years, we, uh, uh, you're you're not going to help anybody because we're not going to vote for Biden. We're not going to vote for Biden. Uh, I don't care if Satan himself comes in. He, we're not going to vote because there's nobody that can outdo what Biden has caused and the damage that he's caused in the world. Right now, we're approaching a hundred thousand of casualties, meaning between the wounded and the dead. And and the uh, the the tens of thousands of children and women, if you don't care about the men that have been killed deliberately, uh, people civilians that are unarmed uh, that have been killed. The so these soldiers that are uh, sitting there setting up mines uh, to blow up this house. Uh, uh, are shot at, and eventually the mines blow up on them. Three buildings collapse on them. Over 24 soldiers are killed, and God knows how many injured. Usually, 
the the kind of the wounded to the to the dead basically it's three to one which means the number of wounded is probably over a hundred uh at this point but uh, israel is hiding those numbers of the wounded uh so that's happening operations continue uh, by the palestinian resistance a, a very disciplined entity against these these racist disgusting genociders that are filming themselves destroying civilian structures and and, and sniping at at um uh, at uh, Gazans that are holding the white flag, as we saw yesterday, uh, uh, where uh, uh, a British uh, TV station uh, uh, just had just interviewed a man carrying a white flag, and when he turned, he was shot by uh, an Israeli sniper. This is who you're you're dealing with monsters here, and we we have to save. It's not. This is not about saving Gaza. This is about saving humanity. This is about re, uh, reviving the soul of humanity. This is about elevating the voices of the global South that are right now uh, screaming uh, uh, for justice. Um, so that's that's where we are right now. And with that, I wanted to introduce a, a, a short segment. Uh, that was done on Double Down um, uh, News that uh, talking about how Netanyahu uh, uh, could destroy uh, Netanyahu's war, this war that's going on, can could destroy Israel. And uh, uh, there's been almost fistfights within the Netanyahu government uh, between the military and the government uh, that... that uh, 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 where where that where tensions are higher on disagreements on what what is to be done, and uh, uh, and what are the goals? They haven't achieved any of the goals. In the meantime, the 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 parents and the children and the relatives of the so-called Israeli hostages, and I say so-called because. Uh, I don't think of them as hostage. These are prisoners of war, just like. Uh, what I would refer to as hostages are the thousands uh, of Palestinians, men, women, and children that are being held without a trial uh, right now in the prisons of Israel. So these so-called hostages uh, are going to be killed by Israel itself. They've already killed a handful of hostages. Israel has killed its own hostages, as you heard about the famous incident of the three Hostages emerging with white flags and shirtless and being shot by their by the IDF by their own people. Um, uh, 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 so none of the goals are being established, and the hostages are are being hurt. More hostages are being killed uh, by bombardment. So there's none of the goals of of that they had set out uh, are. Uh, are happening and that's why the the parents and the relatives of the hostages broke into the Knesset and confronted uh, the uh, Netanyahu administration members of the Knesset and told them that we need a ceasefire now um, they kept on shouting now in Hebrew and drowned out any kind of response uh, because they know that they have Netanyahu has no intention of of ending this war has no intention of saving these hostages in fact these hostages are going to tell a story that's not very flattering to the israeli state they're going to tell them that uh they're going to show evidence that a third of the civilians killed on october 6 were actually killed in a crossfire uh, that between the idf and and hamas and also it's going to show that uh you know, another third was actually that of those killed on October six are uh, uh, soldiers, and then and then the other third is a uh, uh, bombardment of civilian vehicles and civilian buildings in the kibbutzes, uh, which you if you see these pictures, you'll see that completely scorched earth stuff that was not done by the weaponry of the Palestinian resistance, but the, by the superior uh, military, by the superior weaponry of, of, of 
Israel, that superior weaponry that's now being blown left and right uh, by the Palestinian resistance as as they uh, uh, document this this thing. So having said that, let's listen to this piece on how Netanyahu's war could destroy Israel. First and primary war aim was to collapse Hamas. Ironically, a failed war could mean that Hamas could collapse him. The war is a total disaster for Israel. Israel's actions can only be interpreted through the lens of revenge. It's a bloodlust. It isn't a thought-out campaign with a clear endgame and a clear off-ramp. Well, it's now over 100 days since the Israeli response to October the 7th. How have they succeeded? Well, they had basically three war aims. The first was to eradicate and crush Hamas, and Hamas are still a fighting force. The second aim was to clear as many Gazans as they could out of Gaza, and they have failed at that, because although they have killed an obscene number of civilians, 23,000 plus another 7,000 on the rubble, 30,000 at least, of whom the majority are women and children. This generation of Palestinians have learned from the Nakba, and they say, no, we're going to die in our land. And the third aim was to change the whole structure of the Middle East so that Israel could have total dominance over Gaza, southern Lebanon, and Jordan to protect its borders. And that's not happening either. In fact, the opposite is happening. Those borders are all becoming more and more vulnerable to attack from highly trained militant groups surrounding Israel. But really the significant feature of what's happened in the 100 days is just the level of destruction of Gaza. Israel has made vast portions of Gaza uninhabitable. They've literally turned it into rubble and they've done so by design. There have been literally thousands of massacres where the whole family has been killed deliberately. Whatever happens to Hamas, this is laying the foundations for another 50 years of conflict because everyone would have witnessed what Israel has done in the last 100 days. And every child that survives will grow up to be a man that seeks his revenge. The mood in Israel continues to be very ugly. There are no social breaks on openly racist genocidal statements. majority want the war to continue, a clear majority blame all Palestinians, and the soldiers say so. We are looking for babies, but there is no babies left. Maybe I kill a girl, she was 12, but I'm looking for a baby. You Palestinian? Palestinian? Five Palestine. Hi. Five Palestine, baby. Yeah, yeah, very good. You, you five I, Palestinian five babies? Palestinian yeah, babies. yeah, yeah. You love Palestine, I kill you. You guys kill Palestinian kids? Yeah. yeah. Just two this morning. Just two. <laughs> Yesterday only, was a good only, day. Only. Public opinion is actually affecting the behavior of soldiers who are basically committing war crimes against unarmed civilians. I myself personally am not dissociated from these events. I come from a Jewish family. Half of them settled in London, the other half in Haifa. My grandfather's family, half of them were killed in the extermination camps. As someone whose family has really suffered from the Holocaust, that same mistake shouldn't be repeated again and again and again. You can see the same mistakes that Israel is committing, as the French did in Algeria. They killed between a million and a million and a half Algerians, and eventually they had to leave killing an indigenous population that is totally rooted to the land and is fighting not for religion, it's fighting for its homes, it's fighting for land, doesn't work. And eventually, colonial power has to leave. In Algeria's case, it was the French. In Israel's case, it is the European Jews. And you will see an exodus of European Jews leaving Israel the longer this war goes on, as well as being a moral military and political disaster. It has also succeeded in making the Palestinian cause, which on October the 6th was shoved under the carpet, dead and buried. It's all about normalization between Saudis, the rich uh, Gulf states, 
and Israel. It succeeded in making the Palestinian cause a global cause. You only just have to look at the size of the weekly demonstrations in London, half a million people around the world, but also what you can really see is from the other end of Africa, South Africa really taking the lead in trying to seek justice and trying to end the war. And America's stock, Britain's stock, Europe's stock plummeting in terms of its soft power. Israel really is dragging everyone who supports it down the same rabbit hole that it itself is forming. This leaves America much weaker than it was. It was in a posture of withdrawing from the Middle East and repositioning its forces to confront China in the Far East. And it's now stuck there like a rabbit in headlights without the levers really to stop this car crash from happening. Israel doesn't actually have an off-ramp. It doesn't have a post-war strategy. Israel, by controlling the water supply and electricity supply, was the occupying power but now literally they are the occupying power in terms of there being no civil administration and they're going to have to provide some and they've got no plan for it. So you've created an earthquake and you're doing absolutely no relief for the survivors of an earthquake. The other feature of this war is that the Israeli leadership itself is in crisis. Netanyahu, the moment the war stops, will come under enormous amount of pressure for having let Israel's guard down on October the 7th. Army will come under pressure and they'll be asked to explain why there were so few brigades protecting Israel's southern border. If Netanyahu loses power, his legal position, because this case against him for bribery and corruption is continuing, would come back into play. So there are two totally different forces at work, for both of whom a continuation of a war is the only practical outcome. Also, the extreme right, Ben Gavir and Smotrich, they know that they would lose an opportunity of a lifetime if they fell from power because their game plan is literally to change the demographic balance from the river to the sea so that the Jewish population isn't a minority supremacist apartheid administration, it is the majority. דבר ראשון, דבר שני, אני מציע ואני אומר את זה בצורה הכי מפורטת. אתה תישאר שם, עם הצבא, לכבוש את עזה, כן, תישאר שם, ולהיות אחראים, ולהיות אחראים לתושבי עזה. לא, מה שיכול וצריך לקדם זה תוכנית הגירה, עידוד מרצון כמובן, שיאפשר להם ללכת... אתה מתאוד מאוד שצה"ל יהיה בתוך עזה, ומרצון נגרש אותם. וזה מעשי? אודי, בוודאי. אם אנחנו נכריע אותם, בוודאי שזה מעשי. out of power, they would have lost it. They would have lost an opportunity of a lifetime. And their settlers and supporters are all armed. It isn't an easy prospect to have the leadership to say, I'm now going to stop this war and I'm going to start negotiations and defuse all the things that we've been talking about. Israel's not in a position to do that. And Netanyahu's not in a position to do that. So I think he's finished. He's shameless. And I think his aim is to carry the war on for as long as possible. The other ferment going on inside Israel is the debate between the families of the hostages and the Netanyahu government, but also the extreme right. Families of hostages held by Hamas, they gathered today to protest the Gaza invasion. Take a listen. We have to engage in negotiations. We have to do it now. They say that the only solution is to destroy, to flatten Gaza. They never mention the hostages, never. We are afraid for our uh, hostages, our family. We want to bring them home alive. But the extreme right actually aren't that interested in getting Israelis back. They are far more attuned to what was called the Hannibal Directive, where the Israeli army targets an area in which a hostage has been taken so that everyone dies and there are no hostages. Either they prefer deaths, Israeli deaths, to Israeli hostages. We need to look at the euphoria with these hostage releases with a grain of salt. What Hamas wants us to do is they want to divide the country into people whose priority is releasing the hostages through deals. People like me and the other part of the country whose priority is to obliterate Gaza and reconquer it, even at the expense of the hostages.
But I think whatever happens, world opinion is changing. It's not changing in Israel or America's favor. While Israel has always prided itself on making sure that the elites, the political elites, the party leader, future party leaders, the opposition, anyone who wants to be serious in Western politics has to get on side with Israel first. Or the fate of Jeremy Corbyn hangs high over the alternative. You'll be accused of being anti-Semitic. That's basically what I, you toe the line, you say what we want you to say, or we'll accuse you, or we'll get someone to accuse you of anti-Semitism. That's as crude as it has become. But that's not working anymore. I'm very pleased to say it isn't working, because there are millions and millions of people out there who are not part of the conflict, who simply say, no, this is not right. This is what Israel is doing is absolutely not right. And Israel is using hugely in the court of world opinion. It's a small country. It wants to be a Western nation. Its citizens want to travel. It wants to trade. And all of this is working against its own interests. Before October the 6th, the Palestinian cause was gone. You had Netanyahu waving a map of Israel in the United Nations General Assembly, which didn't have any Palestinian territory in at all. It was all belonged to Israel. And the Palestinians had lost. People were talking over their heads about a direct deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. And look what's happened now. It's totally different. No one's now talking about the Abraham Accords. They're talking about the Palestinian cause. They're talking about the need for a Palestinian state. Even Lord Cameron, our British Foreign Secretary, is talking about the need for a Palestinian state. So this war really has stripped everything back. It's shaken the rust off this vehicle. And it's now back to the bare metal again. We're in a very, very interesting place at the moment because the central problem is absolutely right there in front of everyone's noses. It is a Palestinian people that have been chased and shot and bullied off their lands. This land has to be shared. How you do it is up to negotiations, but this land has to be shared. And Jews and Arabs have to regard itself as equals. And that's plainly not happening now. And so it has done a huge boost to the Palestinian cause. But I'm not certain that the, the, the bloodshed is over. And I'm not sure that anyone has actually learned the lessons from this. But there's a big, big lesson there in neon flashing lights about how this conflict should now be ended. What's been really important in the coverage of this awful conflict is the role that independent media have played, that Middle East Eye have played, and Double Down. I would urge you all to support that media because that's the media that is actually going to do the real reporting in the war. Support Double Down News on Patreon and do read Middle East Eye. Yes, for those uh, who are uh, uh, been asking me about good sources for news, of course, um, I've always recommended Electronic Intifada, but Double Down News is an excellent source. And as this, the speaker mentioned, that uh, Middle East Eye is a is a great source of news, very dependable, very reliable. Um, uh, before uh, the next segment, I just wanted to say to clarify what I said earlier about the ICJ ruling uh, in South Africa. Uh, I just got. Uh, the news that the ICJ uh, will deliver its order on South Africa uh, versus Israel uh, this Friday, uh, January 26th, and it's going to be at 7 a.m. our Eastern Standard Time. So it's going to be at 7 a.m. Uh, and uh, uh, this was just confirmed by uh, press through a press release from the court. Also, uh, um, the uh, from the daily updates that I get, it says, remember that this is not a final decision on whether or not Israel has committed genocide. A final ruling on which uh, uh, a final ruling will would take years. Um, but this is just uh, a ruling on ordering provisional measures against Israel to protect, to quote, protect against further severe and irreparable harm to the rights of Palestinians under the Genocide Convention and to ensure Israel's compliance with its obligations under the Genocide Convention not to engage in genocide and to prevent and to punish genocide. So the best case scenario that, that, uh, that they lay out uh, 
um, is that the ICJ orders an immediate ceasefire. The worst case scenario, the ICJ dismisses South Africa's case for not being plausible, which and that's is seen as extremely unlikely, uh, uh, and that's debatable, really, if uh, whether it's you know the way the world has uh, world governments have reacted. Sometimes these judges, which follow the lead of their own government, uh, they betray uh, any cause for humanity. So some analysts think that the orders will be, uh, you know, uh, basically orders coming out of the court will be somewhere in between finding a plausible case of genocide, but only ordering for more aid safe uh, slash safe zones slash um uh passageways um and uh so we'll have to see what happens there um the uh, so this next segment uh has to do with the fact that we have a regional war right now going on uh, basically uh, the united states interests are being attacked everywhere and that's because they are the ones that are providing the weapons that are killing Palestinian children and women. Uh, and it's, it's uh, for a country that uh, out of the hundreds of years uh, 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 of, of, uh, of existence uh, as the United States, there's probably only 15 years when we're not at war. Uh, uh, with with another country. So these are all countries that I'm about to name that have been bombed in the past by the United States are now the United States interests are being attacked in those countries. And you're not hearing about it because uh, the, so, uh, the media is completely, ma mainstream media is completely Zionist and social media is completely, God bless them, uh, Palestinian. Well, not completely, but overwhelmingly, I should say. So, in Iraq, there's 120 attacks on on uh, uh, military uh, installments and military personnel in Iraq that we haven't heard about. Uh, uh, these are U.S. Uh, 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 U.S. Uh, on the U.S. presence there. These attacks in Syria. There's been attacks also by. Um, resistance groups that are part of the axis of resistance in Yemen. God bless them. The the Houthis have checkmated Biden. Biden, who cares more about the passages, the safe passage of uh, commercial ships than he does about uh, humanity and the people of Palestine and the children of Palestine and the women of Palestine and the men of Palestine. Uh, the, because he's a racist, he's a Zionist, a white supremacist. We get we we have a choice to vote between two white supremacists. Congratulations, uh, uh, America! Out of what thirty million that can actually run for office, this is what you came up with, America. Oh my, I don't know what to say. Uh, but uh, Yemen has blocked, is still blocking, and uh, Biden was confronted about this. Uh, uh, the other day, and of course, in his half-asleep uh, manner, he said uh, that, oh, the bombing of Yemen hasn't worked to stop the Houthis. And then the reporter followed up with a question, and are you going to continue the bombing? And he said, yes, I'm going to continue the bombing. Um, and of course, there's Lebanon, and that's where we are now. We're going to, I'm going to, you're going to listen to the first, like, uh, the, 20 minutes or 15 minutes rather of this uh uh great interview with the uh with an expert um on uh on the Lebanese resistance uh that that was conducted uh uh by uh the electronic intifada so let's listen to how Hezbollah aims to deter Israel still hasn't achieved anything in military terms beyond ethnic cleansing and genocide. Uh, it's very puzzling as to how they think that Hezbollah could be not even just defeated, weakened, to be, to be frank. I think it's impossible. 
the electronic intifada the electronic intifada the electronic intifada this is the electronic intifada podcast i'm nora barrows friedman and i'm asa win stanley welcome to the electronic intifada podcast now since the palestinian resistance in gaza began what it calls operation al-aqsa flood on the 7th of october Israel has been carrying out a devastating genocidal war against the civilian population. And this has killed at least 23,000 people and counting. But Israel and its US and European backers have also been threatening to expand this war into a regional war, one which could stretch from occupied Palestine to Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, and even possibly Iraq and Iran. Now, and indeed, all these countries have been the target of US or Israeli bombing attacks since the 8th of October. But regional military powers have not been sitting on their hands. On the 8th of October, Hezbollah, the Lebanese resistance faction, joined the battle against Israel. And since then, they've been trading fire on the northern border of occupied Palestine with the Israeli forces. We're very happy today to be joined by Amal Saad, a world-leading scholar of Hezbollah and the resistance axis, and she is a politics lecturer at Cardiff University in South Wales and was previously at Lebanese University in Beirut. She's the author um, of many things, but um, notably the book Hezbollah, Politics and Religion. Amal, thank you very much for joining us today. We know you're extremely busy, so we're grateful that you found the time for this discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So um, we're going to talk later on in the podcast about the resistance access and about the Western left's, or we could say uh, misconceptions among the Western left of Iran and its relations with Hezbollah. But first of all, let's start at the beginning for viewers, any viewers and listeners who might not know who are Hezbollah and why have they joined the Palestinian resistance's war against the Israeli military since the 8th of October? Um, well, Hezbollah are um, a military resistance movement on the one hand, and on the other hand, they're also a, a political party in Lebanon. Now, they, they started off as uh, a military movement in 1982 that was born as a result of Israel's invasion of Lebanon then. Um, and they very successfully resisted Israel over that time. And by 2000, Israel unilaterally withdrew from South Lebanon as a result of Hezbollah's military uh, activity. And in 1992, they participated in parliamentary elections, the first of its kind after the civil war, and they've been participating since. And in 2005, they also joined the cabinet, the government for the first time. So they've become also uh, very sort of active players in the political system. They're an entrenched part of the state. And they're the only uh, group in Lebanon which has been allowed to retain its arms after the end of the civil war in order to continue to fight Israel and to act as a deterrent to Israel. Could you give us a bit of an overview of what the arm wing of Hezbollah has been doing um, since the 8th of October against Israeli targets? Right. So, so Hezbollah, for the first time in its history, has opened up the northern front fully on behalf of the Palestinians. In the past, they, you know, whenever that front was open, it was for, you know, because of Lebanon. Um, so this was the first time in, in their history, they took the initiative and launched cross-border strikes against Israel. Now they started off by targeting um, surveillance equipment, you know, watchtowers, etc., And they'd sort of blinded Israel in, in that sense. So that they, it did serve a strategic purpose they also um, targeted military bases and barracks. And so progressively, you know, their targeting became more frequent and it sort of increased in quantity and quality. They even, you know, fired at the Iron Dome several times. Um, you know, they actually targeted the Iron Dome. Uh, so there have been different, they've taken down Israeli drones um, and they've, they've hit Israeli settlements in response to Israel's targeting of Lebanese civilians. Uh, so the number of attacks or operations, I think, is around 700 now from October uh, 8. They've used quite sophisticated weaponry, I think. I mean, obviously, 
just a very small sample of their weapons arsenal, but they've used, um, you know, like the Burkan missile, which has a heavy warhead. They've used precision-guided anti-tank guided missiles. Um, so, so they have increased also qualitatively in terms of the types of weapons they've been using and, and the targets and so on. Hmm. Um, I've got a few bullet points here from one of Hassan Nasrallah's speeches um, of some of this stuff. Hassan Nasrallah is, of course, the, the leader of Hezbollah. Um, and uh, he said in his 5th of January speech that there's been an average of six to seven military operations every day. Um, 48 Israeli frontline posts have been hit. Um, 50 targets behind the front line. Um, 17 settlements have been hit. And he said the targets were tanks, armored vehicles, um, and also technological centers, monitoring centers worth hundreds of millions of, of dollars. And um, there's been a kind of, um, I guess you could say a low low intensity war in the North. I would say it's more than that. I, I think it's a misnomer when people say low intensity war, because low intensity warfare usually involves sort of very you know, guerrilla groups, first of all, fighting against state actors. And they also involve sort of more basic, much more basic weapons like IEDs. They don't involve like missiles and, and things like that. So the targets, you know, the, the sort of targeting and weapons that Hezbollah has used and the very fact that Hezbollah is not a regular guerrilla group. It's a, it's a hybrid force that I would say become even closer to a conventional armed force now than it was in 2006. And even then mm. it was a hybrid force. Um, so, in a, you know, looking at these different indicators, I think it's, more sort of apt to say it's a moderate intensity war. It's not a high intensity war yet. No, it's not like the war that you know Hamas and Islamic Jihad are fighting with Israel in Gaza. So it's a, it's a moderate intensity war. Yes. And could you give um, a, a, an indication of the kinds of uh, weaponry Hezbollah has because it's. It's more well armed than the Palestinian resistance, right? Oh yes, I mean it's obviously much more sophisticated in terms of weapons, in terms of training, in terms of size, on all these different sort of levels. Uh, Hezbollah is a much more powerful military force than Hamas is. In fact, it's been called by many military experts as the most powerful non-state actor in the world, uh, and there is a reason for that. Uh, well, part of it is, as you say, that the weapons. So Hezbollah possesses weapons. Obviously, no one really has facts at their disposal. It's quite hard. But just looking at different sort of reports, right. intelligence reports and others, um, Hezbollah does seem to have a vast arsenal of, you know, oh, it's, it's reported 150,000 rockets and missiles. Uh, and of those, a large number are precision-guided. You know, it's got ballistic missiles, it, it has, um, you know, anti-tank guided missiles that are sophisticated. It also has a vast array of drones and, you know, drones have become sort of the weapon of the future and we're seeing that now. So they have very sophisticated drones, long range drones, medium range, short range, uh, you know, kamikaze drones, other types, so that they've, they've had these for a while now and they've been using them effectively. They do have, they have reportedly some air defense systems. I, I don't think they're very sophisticated, but they, they do seem to have, you know, some type of air defense. Um, some say the SA-8, others say the SA-22. And, you know, this is what I've read so far. This is something very difficult to ascertain because obviously Hezbollah mm. doesn't disclose uh, any information about their weapons. Right. Um, they have anti-ship missiles. They use them in the July war, but they have more sophisticated ones now. Um, and so that's just looking at weapons. But what's more important, I think, is the sort of military experience Hezbollah has acquired over the years. And I'm not just talking about South Lebanon and how Hezbollah fared in 2006. It basically, you know, it, if we want to be conservative, we can say it, it prevented Israel or denied Israel a victory. And if you want to be more optimistic, you can say defeated Israel, but it, it, at the very, very minimum, it denied Israel a victory. And in fact, Israel itself in the Winograd Commission, the report that was issued there called it a failure on Israel's part. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, so we know that also Hezbollah has a lot of experience since then, in, including in Syria. It's fought in many different terrains. It's fought conventional armies. It's fought non-state actors, um, and you know, like jihadi groups that it fought there. It, it's fought in different terrains and different weather conditions. Okay, so that's that's great. That's what, that. I mean, that's 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 a good um, overview of what's been happening. Um, so, I had a little bit of um context then so the you know the 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 july 2006 war um you know was a i i i was actually living in the west bank while that was happening and um it was um it was a real eye opener for me as someone coming from the west to see the level of support really among all sectors i mean i i was living in um i was living in ramallah in what was what's called the old city of ramallah it's not really that old but it, um it's um basically there was a lot of christians living there's a lot of christians and because um, ramallah was originally a small christian village which kind of blossomed out boomed out during the um palestinian authority years but this is to say that uh, you know it, it there was, you know, a lot of Christians living in that area, and yeah, everyone was still supporting Hezbollah during that that period. And I remember, I've probably got a photo of it somewhere. There was a a, a Christian bakery which always had a um, uh, an icon of Mary outside it, and then on and, and they during the Hezbollah war, they put up a poster of Hassan Nasrallah during the 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 war the israeli war against lebanon in 2006 um and that was just that was to me that was such a sort of um that's something i always remember because it was like that was emblematic to me of how really everyone was supporting hezbollah whereas to me as someone coming from the west hezbollah was always misportrayed as this terrorist group um in western media but you um could you talk a little bit about, um, well, obviously, you know, people can read your book to get into the full history. We're not going to have time to get into the full history, but could you talk a little bit about the the reason for the emergence of Hezbollah um, in terms of the Israeli occupation of South Lebanon in the 80s? I mean, Hezbollah has, I, I, I'm not going to exaggerate and say it, it enjoys, you know, full popular legitimacy. It doesn't. Uh, no group does in Lebanon. <laughs> Not even the Lebanese state enjoys that legitimacy, unfortunately. Um, but and, and Nasrallah has repeatedly said that Hezbollah, its armed status, does not enjoy a national consensus. And Lebanon is a deeply polarized society. Different sects and parties have different foreign allegiances. Um, you know that are that are complete in complete contradiction with one another. You know you've got U.S. back groups, Saudi back groups, uh, you know groups that are supported by Iran. So and some in the past by Syria. Um, Syria is much less powerful now, of course. So that there are these sort of competing foreign allegiances. So it's very hard for Hezbollah to enjoy full popular legitimacy uh, in terms of its armed presence. But what happened particularly after two thousand and five, after the Hariri assassination, when Lebanon became divided between, you know, March 14 forces and, and March 8 forces was that uh, it was able to not only rally all the Shia of Lebanon behind it, who make up about a third of the population, um, virtually all according to opinion polls, according to election results, you know, the, I think around 95% of Lebanese Shia support Hezbollah. Um, and they've also been able to rally some Sunnis behind them. And, and this was a bit difficult in 2005 right before the July war, because there were so many sort of sectarian tensions in the aftermath of the Hariri assassination and in the aftermath of the US invasion of Iraq. Um, so over the years, it, it, it managed to, I think, um, you know, rally other groups behind it, and especially the Christians. So the Christians under the leadership of the former president, uh, Michel Aoun, uh, who had heads or headed the free patriotic movement, at the time, they were much bigger than they are now. And so, you know, we could say Hezbollah enjoyed maybe, you know, a, a very, I, I don't want to say half, but a very large segment of the Christian population as well. And you would see like in a lot of the Hezbollah rallies, you would find many Christians uh, who attended those rallies. So it did have some cross-sectarian support. Um, now that support, obviously, during the July war, it peaked because at wartime, usually when any group resists Israel, 
uh, is, you know, this is this case for Hamas today. You can look at the figures like before the invasion and, and during the invasion, they skyrocket. So most Lebanese, even sort of more right wing Christian groups, a lot of them also as well rallied behind Hezbollah. A majority of Sunnis rallied behind Hezbollah. This was 2006 when sectarian tensions were at their peak. Um, now, since then, there's been, you know, thank, thankfully, a desectarianization in Lebanon. We've got much less sort of sectarian tensions than we did in the past. Um, I'm talking like the last two, three years, this has been the case. And today, in fact, you know, looking at sort of public opinion in Lebanon, it's clear that the overwhelming majority of Sunnis support Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Uh, you know, they support the Palestinian cause. Obviously, the overwhelming majority, you know, over 95% of Shia do as well. The Druze do as well, you know, the Muslim sect. They support the Palestinian cause. So I think it would be logical to expect these other sects to transfer that sort of support to Hezbollah if um, Israel attacked Lebanon. Uh, and obviously many Christians support as well. I left I left out the Christian community. So, uh, uh, what you were listening to is an electronic intifada interview with Amal Saad um, that she's an expert on the Lebanese resistance and uh, we were gonna we're gonna continue the segment um, uh, at the next show um, but all this to say is that right now um, the in terms of the northern front as as Lebanon is called in relationship to the to occupied Palestine that the northern front right now has cleared out basically all the northern settlements uh um to to a certain uh buffer zone so this is the first time in history where a buffer zone is set up or basically inside the uh, uh israel rather than what israel has been doing which is clawing at uh every border it has and creating a buffer zone uh on on all sides so this is the first time that the buffer zone is on their end um and 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 being cleared so uh, if uh, the war a full-on war with uh, hezbollah has not started yet you know we hear about uh tit for tat kind of um hits and uh, uh, as of yesterday for example they hit another Israeli military base deep into the territory, one that they've hit before that was repaired and they hit it again uh, in retaliation for targeted assassinations that uh, uh, Israel is conducting uh, in the Arab world. Um, and uh, just to let you know that uh, right now, the the only thing the only achievement, as I mentioned before, that the IDF has made is to kill tens of thousands of civilians. That's that's the what they consider an achievement. Um, it's it's proven to the world to be the most depraved military, standing military in the world in the 21st century. And what it's done in terms of the degree of bombing matches like the bombing of Dresden in in. Uh, in World War II, that's uh, it's unmatched by anything that has happened since World War II. Uh, these two thousand bombs that were dropped uh, on civilian populations. In the meantime, again, on on the edges of Gaza, where they said that they control, they've they've been losing the battle against Hamas, which is <laughs> poorly. You know, the the weaponry they're using is mostly manufactured. Uh, uh, in-house, so to speak, and put together, patched together, and whatever they're getting from the Israeli military, which is uh, U.S. weapons. You know, we provide all the weaponry to the, to to every struggle in the world, and we're always on the wrong side of uh, liberation struggle uh, uh, as a country, as the United States. We're always on the wrong side. Of, of this thing and you know with the mass shootings that are happening uh, uh in the united states it's really incredible when i find uh liberals and uh talking about disarmament of these lunatics that are shooting schools when uh, when they ex totally accept the fact that half of their taxes actually go to the military to weapons so how are you going to disarm 
a, a, a local population of lunatics, if your culture is based on war and weaponry, if your economy is based on that. So the, 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 you, in order to stop these mass shootings, you have to end this culture. You have to end, uh, so stop being the merchant of death for the whole world. That's, that's how you get to the root of the problem. Um, that that's the reality. Having said all of that, imagine, imagine if you uh, were uh, uh, with with them losing against this uh, uh, ragtag, very disciplined uh, guerrilla force. The in the in in Lebanon, it's a much more advanced force, and we'll see what comes in the days uh, in the coming days. But look uh, for the ICGA ruling at 7 a.m. on Friday this morning. Thank you, and we'll see you next Wednesday. Thank you for listening to the Just Completed program. If you'd like to offer feedback on any of our programming, please email us at info at wpfw.org. WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns with some brief news headlines. Former President Donald Trump won New Hampshire's first in the nation presidential primary yesterday, beating former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. At an election night party, Haley congratulated Trump on his victory, but insisted she did not intend to drop out of the race as she prepares for a primary in her home state next month. Trump's victory wasn't nearly as commanding as his Iowa win last week, but that was anticipated. On the Democratic side, President Joe Biden won the primary as a write-in candidate. Fighting has intensified around the city of Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, where aid groups warned that thousands of civilians were trapped in hospitals or struggling to flee the area. Israel has issued new evacuation orders to over a half million Palestinians in Khan Yunus, where many had sought refuge from Israel's attacks in the northern Gaza Strip. Yesterday, at least nine Palestinians were killed when Israeli tanks struck one of the UN's largest shelters in Khan Yunus. Meanwhile, an Israeli government spokesperson ruled out a Gaza ceasefire today, despite reports that negotiations on hostage releases were progressing and repeated international calls for Israel to cease its bombardment. At least 25,700 Palestinians have been killed and nearly 64,000 injured in Israeli strikes on Gaza since October 7th. A South African news outlet is reporting that the International Court of Justice will announce a ruling on Friday on an emergency request to halt the fighting in Gaza. The report said a South African delegation landed in The Hague ahead of the expected announcement. South Africa's emergency request is part of a broader case the country brought to the ICJ accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. The ICJ will not rule on the genocide allegations on Friday, as proceedings in that broader case could take years. Israel has rejected the claim of genocide and sent a legal team to The Hague to contest it. Russia said today that a military transport plane carrying Ukrainian prisoners of war was deliberately shot down by Ukraine, killing all 74 people aboard. Ukrainian officials say they are investigating whether or not prisoners were on the plane. Russia said 65 of the plane's passengers were Ukrainian POWs on their way to a planned prisoner swap. A Ukrainian military spokesperson confirmed that a swap was due to happen today, but that it is not going forward. The swap would have been the 50th of the conflict and the second this month. A Russian defense ministry statement called the attack a, quote, terrorist act. The plane also carried nine Russian crew members and soldiers. Separately, Ukrainian President Zelensky said a large Russian missile attack yesterday struck residential areas in Ukraine killing 18 people and injuring 130 others. A new study published today in the journal Nature says the Earth's groundwater is being rapidly depleted and calls for reforms in water policy to solve the problem. Researchers studied tens of thousands of wells and hundreds of aquifers across 40 countries, 
finding that groundwater depletion in many areas is accelerating compared to the 1980s and 90s. At particular risk are aquifers in dry climates where there is extensive agriculture. The study pointed to northern Mexico, parts of Iran, and southern California as examples. But in other areas, groundwater depletion was found to have slowed or even reversed since the 1980s and 90s, possibly due to changes to agricultural policy. The U.S. Geological Survey says that about 30% of the world's fresh water is found as groundwater. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 48 degrees and overcast. In New York City, 43 degrees and foggy. For WPFW in Washington, 